Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Where are we? We're in Mendrisio, which is um, about four kilometres north of the border to Italy. And, um, well, four kilometres from my house as well, or where my European base is. I'm actually Australian. I rent a house in Europe. I own a house in Australia. So where is my home? I've been moving around all my life. I don't know what a home is, but um, my European base is here in Switzerland in a little town called Stabio, a couple of kilometres from where we are now in Mendrisio. But Mendrisio was also host city to the World Championships in, I think, 76 or 77, and uh, won by none other than um, a Belgian guy called Eddie Merckx. And in, also in 2009, won by a local guy who is just down the road here by the name of Cadell Evans, i.e. me. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So we're just about to get onto the what was the 2009 World's Course. Uh-huh. So it came up from the right here, took a right at this roundabout. We're going to go up here. Now this is um, this was the main climb, the harder of the climb. Yeah, and this hill is a bit of a drag, isn't it? So yeah, so this was the main and the hardest climb, where, as usual in the world, everyone looks at all oh, the biggest, longest one. Oh, everything's going to happen here. There, there is another one, but um. Oh, yeah, this one, you carried a bit of speed before we came from that roundabout. It was downhill and you had about 800 metres of flat. You're still carrying a bit of speed at the bottom, so in the peloton, this bit passed relatively unnoticed. Do you know what? You're still climbing like you always used to. It's, it's interesting when you see someone riding who you're used to seeing on the TV. And it's, what, like, it's like four years since you retired. Even now, I can, still, I can tell you still climb the same way. It's, just, it's like a fingerprint, someone's climbing style. Well, I often look at bike riders and also between personality types, rider types, but even physique. We'll take a left here. Now, this is where it starts to get a bit harder. Tell me about it. <laughs> okay. And, um, and I'm always interested in the relationship between people's physique and their mentality. But what leads it? Their physique or their mentality? Are we, is it our mentality that leads our physique to develop or is it our, normally our, we get physical or an, our mentality from our parents? But um, at the moment my mentality is saying I'm too heavy. <laughs> personality types, um, body types, there sort of seems to be a relationship. I'm really interested in book. At the moment, yeah, written by a runner, and he's always like ectomorphs, so, so introverted and reserved, <laughs> endomorphs, so more outgoing. Anyway, anyway, we're sort of 
side dragon. So this is the steepest part of the climb. Yeah. This here, you can hear the water. This climb's actually called Aqua Fresca. Fresh water. There is a fountain just down there on the right. We'll probably fill our bottles up there later. This is probably the probably the steepest part of the whole world's course. Yeah, it was like 10, 12 percent, something like that. Yeah, solid. Yeah, this would be sapping. And how many laps of this did you do back I think in it was 2009? 14 laps, if I remember. Yeah. 12, 14, just come over here. It's getting warm now, though. I mean, it's saying, yeah. saying on that sign by that shop's 27 Celsius. Oh, really? Huh. That, that warm. It's the humidity here that's uh, my pet hate in uh, cycling. I could ride in any conditions, but I hated humidity. Well, at least you've got short sleeves. I'm overdressed. Well, because I knew it was going to be humid today. Well, I thought it was going to be wet. <laughs> yeah, well, if it didn't rain, if it didn't rain, I would have found us a coffee shop already. Uh, I'll come here single file again. Yeah. So we're going to take a left here. and We're going to go off the world's course onto training roads. Okay. Yep, so we're just going up by the church, the parochia. We take a right here. I think, actually, I think Michael Rogers might live on this road. I don't even know. Does he? Um, go into small gear now, I'd suggest. Okay. Whoa. Okay, this is uh, definitely a difficult climb. So this is the last bit. I think it might be 27% at the top there. 27%. Okay. Might have realised. This is real Giro weather. It's neither hot nor cold, but you sweat a lot. It's a real Giro climb as well. It is a little bit. Four hundred watts just to creep up this thing. Just, just to get up it, yeah. This was um, what I'd often use for the before the Arden Classics. Yeah. This this lap here just give you a feel. Because of the I repetition, said, the up and down. Do like a six when the steep steep climb. Your, your your arms hurt more than your legs on the steep section at the top there when you're going flat out. Mm. And uh, I think I used to do sort of 6:20, 6:40 laps. We were like 7:45 or something that time. So just give get it, give to get a feel for it. I don't do 6:40 lap times anymore. Brutal though. I mean, just doing it up and down. That is like you say for the Arden classics for like. Because yeah, you just lactate, downhill, lactate, downhill. Yeah, on off. And then um, I sometimes, I actually come back here a bit because if I need to get fit for an event but I don't have much time to train, I come and do a lap or two here and a little <laughs> ride or, a bit, or this lap. We could do, now I'm just thinking we could do the other bigger one, which yeah. is, it's a it's a 45 minute lap when we're going good. To go towards Como. And then, yeah, rather than do the whole thing back here, we'll, we'll, we'll get off at the Como end and then go down there and have a, we'll do Coffee. the more, um, what do you call that? The um, Dolce Vita di un ciclista. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll the passeggiata. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is <laughs> this is the stuff that pays the bills here. <laughs> Over there, that's... <laughs> that's where you spend the money. Let's get in some water. If it's a, is it a spring? I mean, yeah, there's a thing just here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Since it's called Aqua Fresca, we should probably get some Cool water. I've been talking but not drinking. Now tell me, is the water cold? Because it is called aqua fresca here. Yeah, yeah, it's cold. So, once you'd won the world, 
what was the reaction like then? I guess the team's attitude had to change towards you at that point. Oh, the cycling world changed around me. It was incredible. I had a year, a lot of people were blaming me. Oh, if Cadell had done this, if Cadell had done that, you know, this and that. And then one race, oh, you're the god of cycling, it seems. The way you're treated, the way you move in the peloton, the way you're regarded. Respect for the jersey. Yeah, but I'm still the same guy. And for me, like it was notable to me. We went back to the hotel after the race and so on. And we had dinner with the team and I didn't go out or anything. I was just so relieved and happy and satisfied with my race. I didn't feel any need to have a big party or anything. And you know, everyone tells you shit. You're hardly going to take them out and have a big party with them. Um, <laughs> sort of just in a smug kind of way, happy just to enjoy it for myself. And um, we had dinner with the, te- the national team. Went home the next morning and um, I think either TV were waiting at home and, oh, you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you're the world champion. I'm like, hang on a second. Going out for coffee with my dog and... <laughs> and um, no, 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 you've got to do this. Oh, God. Is it fair to say up to that point you were considered a bit of a nilly man, even though you'd been on the podium at yep, Grand Tours? Yeah, I'd always been accused of not attacking and this is, I find this talk a bit superficial and talk to create talk. Yeah. And I'm like, who, who attacked Armstrong? Yeah. <laughs> I rode in the, my first Tour de France was in 2005 and um, I was turning myself inside out just to stay with them till the last 10, the selection of the last 10 and I remember my first hilltop finish in 2005. But that certainly, that's where for me the cycling world changed, the attitude of the, everyone changed towards me. Yeah. But like I'm saying, like the TV's waiting for me at home, but I'm like, hang on, I'm still the same person, I'm still the same guy. I'm just gonna go out, get a coffee, I take my dog, I read the newspaper and go, go, go for a ride or whatever. Yeah. Um, I think you are very down to earth. I think oh, for you. a tour winner, for a world champion, you but, know, we've met like, a few times before, you're, you're hugely approachable, I find. And, I, you know, having not known you when you were racing, the picture that was portrayed was completely the opposite to that, oh, which yeah, is untrue. Yeah, yeah. Which, well, for me, it's kind of frustrating. It's sort of like, why? Because I, sorry, my life in my house is, it's, that's my life. I don't want people to know, or take a left up here. Yeah. Um, that was a little bit sort of frustrating for me. Just some people just, they don't want their private life to be public. And, no. Well, it wouldn't be private life if it's public, is it? But I just <laughs> live my life, but that's like, what I'm sort of trying to lead to here is I felt I was the same guy, I was doing the same training, I lived in this little apartment, guess what, and the clothes hang up and I remember a friend came around later that week or something and you know, I've got the clothes hanging to dry in the hallway of the apartment and there's like three rainbow jerseys hanging up. For a pro rider to come in and see that they're kind of like, oh, I was sort of like, oh yes, it has changed a bit, hasn't it? <laughs> but for me it was still the same, but the whole cycling world's attitude changed towards me. And that was kind of, in some ways, a little bit, there you see it all. Yeah. You're not treated for the person you are, but the results you've made. Yes. And which, as a human being, you're kind of like, ah, uh, does that not count for anything? So, anyway. But did that make a difference then, in the two years afterwards, the way the peloton treated you, the bigger cycling yep. world treated you? Because yep. it was two years after you won the world, you then went on to win the Tour, having been runner-up twice. 
and yeah, then on the podium oh, at the world Tour. especially after the tour and and I think that the following year Flesh for Lawn and well the main thing what people didn't realize was the next year things did change for me well I'd, I'd already been in discussions before the Worlds to go to the BMC team yeah and when everyone changes around you when all of a sudden I go from a team that was sort of they're actually blaming me for a lot of things to a team that's like, oh, this is great. He just wants to work hard and motivate the riders and work together as a team to get the best results we can. All of a sudden, I found the ambient, which is fantastic for me. And we were just working towards you know, the Giro, the Tour, and all these races. So um, the biggest thing for me, BMC, on a personal level in my, my profession, they have this fantastic press officer, George Lujinga, a Swiss guy. Um, but he was just respectful of my health and well-being. Yeah. You've done enough interviews today. There are more requests, but you've done the most important ones. Go and get some rest. I'm just like, oh, this is heaven. Sensible. Because as opposed to just being wheeled out like a, I don't know, a carousel at the fair or something. Oh, interviews, press conferences, left, right, and this and like. Mm. Uh, that, and that for me was very difficult, which created friction within the press. Because I'm just like, can I? Do, I just want to go to bed. There is. I do remember a bit of footage of you basically running away from yeah, a, from like, a crew through a hotel. When I think you, I think you said you're going to go and walk your dog. Does, yeah. that, does that sound familiar? Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> just like, I just want to. Can I just? Okay, this is my job. This is my profession. But in every profession, at a certain time. You clock off work, either you leave the office or you leave the construction site or yeah. you leave the workshop and you go home. And of course, the problems are still in your head, but that's every job. So we're going to take a left to stuff here. We're still in Switzerland here? Yep. Where do we, do we cross the border? I guess we have uh, to, to this go is, to Como. So the mountain top there is, um, is, it's still Switzerland on the other side of that mountain top. When we see the mountain top with the, um, mobile communications tower on it, that's, that's Italy. Uh-huh. We, um, family activity, we drive to the village up there on the other side, park, uh-huh. and you walk up towards that, don't quite get to that big pointy mountain up there. Yeah. I think it's called, um, Gran Sasso. Um, you walk just across the border and there's this fantastic refugio. We walk there, the five months old on my, in the, Wrap on my chest. Oh yeah. My eight-year-old, if he's with us, is walking there, dawdling in the forest. Are we there yet? How much further? Oh, I know. <laughs> but it's a. I like it as a family activity that we all do. Good workout as well, carrying the baby. Yeah, and yeah, and by the time you get up there, you deserve. They have this polenta uncha. It's um, polenta. They have really good polenta up there. Like uh, made in an old mill. Uh huh. Um, is it garlic, sage, butter? and cheese. Oh, sounds delicious. <laughs> On a cold day when you get up there, <laughs> it's so satisfying. Not pro cyclist food though, right? <laughs> no, but there's a two hour walk in the mountains to get there and a two hour walk back. Yeah, you've earned it. <laughs> you nearly earned it. It's a beautiful sunny day. It is, I was in just Ticino, thinking that. so uh, let's enjoy it. <laughs> well, it lasts. But then getting to the 2011 tour, how were you feeling in your head then? Did you have the confidence that you could go that bit further and win the whole thing? Well, and I think it was a big thing for me. I hadn't had too many problems. I went in there well. I wasn't considered a favorite by the press. Because you're a bit older than the rest of the 34. field. 34. Yeah. I think so most people thought I'd consider I was too old because by then no one had won the tour at 34 for 
so long, I think. And you're a non-European, which means the odds are stacked against you too. But yeah, probably. But then also, um, but within our team, Quincy and George and these guys, they'd seen me racing. They'd seen me in the races. And I always had this thing with your teammates. I learnt this from guys like Bettini and Frey. Rather than tell or ask riders to do something, show you're worthy of their support. Just go there, look, I think I can be good today. If we can just get here, here, we'll see what I can do. So lead by example rather than delegation, I guess. And then they think, shit, if I don't do this, he might not win. But then that's a decision they're making. Yeah. That's pressure they're putting on themselves. And then they're thinking, well, that's what I need to do, rather than being told. And and can so I just reflect on that wisdom that you received as well from riders like Bettini, Ferrer, hugely successful as well. Uh, George Hincapie, at your disposal, I guess, you know, one of the greatest domestiques of all time. Um, he'd been there, done it, ridden so many Grand Tours. So to earn his trust must have been quite a... An accomplishment. Yeah, well, initially when we first met as teammates or future teammates, it was like, oh, the tour, hmm. <laughs> and he really had his doubts. <laughs> but then the feeling I got from them, something I reflect on, but they all went to altitude camps before. They'd done the classics. But I think they'd taken this. If we're firing on all cylinders as a team, Going back to like taking the onus upon themselves, they went to altitude camps with their families and their girlfriends and things. Um, I got the feeling they didn't want to be the weak link in the chain because yeah. that might let it down. So it was this we built that built a real strong strength in unity. Of course, in the mountains, we weren't the strongest team in the team time trial. We lost two riders in the first K or something, we were second by two seconds. So, on the flat, we had a really good team, but. Anyway, but that built a real strong unity within us. And we just went about it. We knew what we had to do. Everyone wanted to do it as best they could. And we didn't have the fuss of being a favourite or... And then, like, having the great media manager in George Lutzinger by my side kept everything, any external factors towards me, sort of filtered them a bit and just... So which helped me stay calmer and... So just more relaxed, which is very important. Yeah. What about the competition? What did you think yeah, of that? Yeah, and then the Schlecks, Bockler. Yeah, in some ways, because Contador had done the Giro that year, so he wasn't at the same level. And then, I don't know, it seemed a little bit, after 2010, it seemed to have changed a bit, it seemed from the outside. I've often wondered, when you're in one of those select groups during a tour with the other GC contenders, the Schlecks, Bockler you mentioned, what what's the conversation like? Is there any conversation? Do you say anything well, to each other? <coughs> we mentioned previously, not when we were recording, about um, Brad Wiggins. He's a complicated guy. So I remember riding. It was the year he was fourth, 2009. Riding next to him. Anyway, he was on the climb as like the groups being selected. Still, I can't remember how many were left. It wasn't it wasn't like the final selection, 2009. I was still there, so. There's still a fair few riders left. And he was reciting lines from a movie that I knew. Okay. Stock, stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Oh, was yeah. the original version. Guy Ritchie film. And, 
and he was reciting lines from that as we're getting dropped on the climb. And some guys looking at him, what, what? And I was like, ah, uh, you have to have seen the movie to understand this. And I thought, what a clever cryptic guy. But he was actually he was in really good, good form that, that year, year, but he crashed and broke crashed his collarbone. On early, yeah, early out, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit. I always had this thing for the tour. How do you win the tour? First, don't lose it. Yeah, and that's that first become, week is always crazy, right? I think we get more information about the race, but there's also more road hazards, traffic islands, spectators. But of course, the more dangerous it is, the more nervous people get. Uh-huh. The more nervous people get, the more dangerous it becomes. Yeah. So it's this kind of vicious little, kind of this vicious little circle that, um, yeah, we do. This is on here. This is um, a test loop that I use for testing bikes. Okay. This section here. So, um, varied road. We've got a bit of a downhill. One climb, another narrow downhill through the goats and things, and then we've got the last climb, which is pretty steep at the top. Through the goats, you said, okay. Yeah, there's goats and sheep. It makes it feel like you're really in the mountains. I think it's like one more climb up to the village. Yep. Then we have a descent, then we have a hard climb, but then it's mostly downhill nearly all the way to Italy. So Beautiful. I've just noticed we're descending on a fairly rough road. Cadell is standing up and then changing hands while standing up. So he's going downhill, standing up, no hands. Cannot compete with that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That was uh, the same things about five times over. I always stop. I'm just saying those corners, you have like high speed corners, low speed corners. Yeah. 
good surface, bad surface, and then of course you have that bit which is all about how's the compliance on the that frame on those on those cobbles hit that it's beaten. It's like oh, yeah. this doesn't absorb bumps much, or it's this like, or, or this does. It's so, all Flanders or something. Yeah, yeah, and it's but it's because you have a real mix of surfaces from here up to that town up there, yeah. which is where we're going to arrive to. You sort of cover nearly everything you're going to ride on except gravel. Yeah, got another little path over there that we we um, will be testing in the future with that, but. Um, it's uh, all these corners I use and I know quite well and because I know them so well I, I sometimes I do one bike and then another one change bike and then another one another one and you go back and do it again you do like a time trial on this section here but it gives you a really you can find real subtle differences between uh -huh. the frame or way corners so this one's just a little bit longer wheelbase than say the race one so you notice on those corners which are a bit slower speed it's a bit slow to get around the corners right whereas on the other side where it's higher speed and smoother road it's 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 more stable because it is longer yeah it's not yeah, as yeah. fast but it's um but like this one loves the descent on that side this side's a little bit this side's a little bit more technical and a little bit faster steering bike like like the, the, what the bike the guys race on is perfect for this this stuff here and is that the job mostly these days testing uh often the new part of, of it part of it yeah, yeah. Uh, last being an week, ambassador for them yeah last week we did, i did a ride with journalists on a new model bike which we're launching soon and um and that was to be with them but to give a always um what i what i normally try and to try and do if time allows go test the bike then speak with the engineers and the designers and try mm. and tell them well this is what feels like it's been changed now tell mm. me and then um, that's that's the best way to do it doesn't time and timelines and manufacturer doesn't always allow for that mm. just to give a, an honest feedback from a rider's point of view and because i raced mountain bikes and i was quite particular with my position and my equipment i've got a got quite a good or I really had a really good feel mm -hmm. for it as a racer especially my position and things and, and just because you ride exactly the same position you have everything so and then oh one millimeter different here or two millimeters different there and other but then because um, I've been riding different bikes I sort of lost a little bit of that feel I don't obviously ride as many hours but also riding different bikes you sort of lose a bit of that feel but also you need to ride different bikes make comparisons mm. and so on so so anyway I'm, I'm actually on this one today because we have a newer model which is it looks it looks almost identical mm -hmm. to go back and forth between the two to get a real, uh, to feel the differences. So I have certain opinions which go against some of the things in uh, cycling at the moment. I always I always run higher pressure in the bigger tyres if I ride the bigger tyres. Yeah, like I'm 120. Yep, yeah, I'm yeah. St I'm still old school. Old school. <laughs> Small, narrow, lighter, lower, less surface area, yeah. high pressure, less riding riding resistance, and um, put extra handlebar tape on if it's too rough. <laughs> but, uh, efficiency and rolling resistance. So I'm just going to do a U-turn here, Matt. Uh-huh. Uh, engine is, I'm going to, I'll come back, 360, come back with you. Oh. Um, was my turnaround point for the test lab. The BMC engine is thought I was nuts. <laughs> I'm insisting on having that in the test course. What? It means nothing. No. Trust me. Slow speed stability is really important. Because when someone goes out and buys a 10,000 euro bike and they yeah. do a U-turn at the coffee shop, and they crash in front of all their friends, they're not happy. <laughs> that test is really important. <laughs> Engineers thought I was a bit crazy. That, that, is, that was a lung buster. Are we at, are we at altitude here as well? How high no, are we? no, we're not at altitude. We're about 380, 400 metres here. And from here on, it's mostly downhill, yeah. as in there's no steep climbs. Uh -huh. But this is the top section of the Sassone, the big lap. Yeah. which uh, takes about 25 minutes to get here when you're like training as a pro, training good. I actually remember once, I've told this a story before, 
I think like the, just before that switchback, which we can see right there, I remember yeah. being here one day doing this training with all the laps. Right? And I got, I think, towards the last big lap I was going to do here, right to there, and I went hunger flat like precisely at that tree there. You know how hard it was for me to descend all the way to Mendrizio and the first Coke machine I bought to buy Coke to, to ride the six kilometres home because I was so Cooked. <laughs> empty <laughs> just to do the downhill back to the back to the Mendrizio. I was like, oh. Let's just finish off the story though about um, about winning the tour. 2011. Yep. Because it was a it was a difficult one. But having said that, which tour is ever easy? But. In this instance, like you said, you had the Schleck brothers kind of ganging up on you, I guess. Yeah, certainly having two, well, two GC contenders already then, because this is before Sky, Sky came into their strength, which was the next year with Froome and Wiggins. Yeah. But having two podium contenders on the one team was something we hadn't seen for a long time. So um, that was interesting, but also we didn't have an overriding favorite and a team to control but they sort of made a little bit more open tour in some ways while an open tour is uh, more exciting to watch to race and win or perform well in it's a little bit harder because <laughs> because it's more unpredictable so as a rider you, you want a more predictable race so you know what you have to do remind me bit... what were the big climbs towards the end did it go up Galibier was that yeah so we had the main stages near the end where uh, I think we did the is it Isoard down to Briançon yeah. And then uh, Lotharé Galibier was when Andy went away on the Isouard. Yes. With, um, I think it was, was it Fulkstein in the break with him? I can't remember. Yes, sounds familiar. But they, they took a lot of time. But what, what they did as well was they fatigued so, so many riders that there wasn't, only the favourites were left yeah. to chase. And as we know, the favourites don't often like to chase because, well, if they chase, they're sort of giving the race to one of their main competitors. So and that's where it was up to me, on, uh, almost on my own, to, on the Galibier to, to at least bring back Andy back into, like, we'll put ourselves back into contention. And, and you just had to grind it out. Yeah, and then and that was again, just staying calm, under pressure, thanks to my previous losses, I had experience of being in that situation before and, and having the legs as well, you know. I remember a vivid moment on the race. John and Lang, the director, radios were working there. It was up in the mountains. Okay, uh, Contador struggling, Contador struggling. But of course, anyone who's a rider, and especially at that time, when you've got Contador hanging on the back of your group and you've been pulling for 3K and he's struggling, it's like, oh, he must be riding pretty well. Okay, you've dropped Contador. You ride Contador off the wheel in the mountains at the Tour de France. It's like, oh, this time, I am on a good day. These kinds of things are going, going along. And, in consideration, time to the break, how much time were we taking back, or time to Andy. But also, um, Frank, was in, Frank was in the group with me. Yeah. So I couldn't, like I had to save something to, to go against in case he, he, he started attacking me in, in the final. Having, and this is me, was it two, three weekends ago, I was in Luxembourg at their ride. We're, we're still great friends. All friends, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, we were, we were competitors then, we're friends now. But the other thing that played in your favour was there was the time trial. Yeah, so that uh, was still to come, but we had the short, it was one of the first years we had like these shorter, or the first time in a long time the two had these short, sharper stages. So we yeah. had the, I think it was 150Ks with um, Telegraph, Galibier, Abduez. Yes. 
I wasn't well positioned at the start of the um, telegraph. I was a bit far back in the group and, and Contador is attacked. Anyway, I've gone to move up and I felt something gone wrong in my bike and I think what might have happened, we had these lightweight quick releases. It felt like the rear wheel moved within the frame. And just I was just like, rather than ride this stage with a doubt in my mind, I'll just stop and I'll change bikes. But of course, all of the favourites are up the road in a breakaway then. Yeah. And we've got a chase from behind. And then the team were amazing. They just went one off and they knew their order, so they straight away went in their order. Worst climber to best climber. Steve Morabito led me, got me almost to the back of Sanchez. Yeah. As long as I could get to the back of Sanchez for the descent of the Galibier, I thought we could come back. Because if we descended over down there together, we could come back to Schlecks and the guys there. You may notice it's 12.25. Uh-huh, oh, lunchtime. Swiss, Swiss people have lunch at 12.30 and that's what is possibly why there's a few cars anyway. Like clockwork. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I, I felt that both Andy and Frank were a bit, they wanted to take more time on me and they didn't and that sort of unsettled them a bit. So going to the time trial. But still we weren't favourites but it was, it was exactly where I wanted to be closed and okay now we just got to do a good time trial and I'd done Dolphiner that year and done that course in the time trial, so I'd set up my equipment and all my tyres, wheels, everything I'd chosen and I knew exactly what I wanted to do and, and I'd really, I'd been focused on doing a really good time trial there. So going into the time trial you must have thought, I I'm going to do this. Had in my mind it was possibly going to be really important left at this roundabout. Yeah. So this time trial was possibly going to be really important. The feeling of time trialling into yellow though, knowing that you just had the parade in Paris to go, must have been incredible. It must have been like winning the Worlds two years earlier, you know, proving the naysayers wrong. I think, I think from my opinion you've done a great interview here, because there are two moments in my life where I've had this most amazing, incredible experience, and you've nailed them exactly there, where you're going in those last three k's ago, You've taken however much time on Schleck, take right, you've won the tour, you're getting this information over the radio from John Lalonde. It's like, I'm doing 50k an hour and you know what, I feel like I could do 60. <laughs> you, you don't feel your legs and that's where you have this like euphoria of all these years and coming second. And it's just like, oh, how fast do I need to go? What gear do I need to ride? Uh, let's just go. That was an amazing moment coming into the bus. I could just let myself go. Like I gave out a huge scream, I think, which isn't something I've probably ever done in my life. And just hugging the guys, because they're all sitting there and they said, I've never been nervous. And there was quite a few established time trialers in the group, Brent yeah. and um, Quincy. And, and, they, and they're all the same. I've, I was more nervous for this tour, time trial than I have ever been for any of my own. Uh, we'll just slow down here. I think we can take a left here. Okay. Just a bit shorter. Oh, it's the border. Yep, so I can make a Brexit joke here. Do you have your passport? I'm afraid I don't. I knew you wouldn't. So we're just going into the EU now. <laughs> anyway, so that weight off your shoulders, like I said, when we started beginning, I started talking of having felt like a nilly man to then steal the world and tour double, the two greatest jerseys in the sport. 
You must have thought this is it now. Actually, in my mind, I thought, well, I've won it once, now I'll go again. And then, um, then things started, well, my life changed and the tour and I have to say, like, the world's is huge in cycling. I would take a right and a left here. The world's is huge in cycling, but the tour, the, the tour is, is big in cycling. It's huge in sport, but it's so big in sport that it's also out of sport. So still today, I go to rise and things in Asia, and I'm introduced as the 2011 winner of the Tour de France, or as a Tour de France winner, and whether it's a cycling thing or a non-cycling thing, yeah, it resonates with a lot of people. I'm amazed how many people it resonates with. More than so, the world's. Yeah, much more than the world's, yeah. The world's, in, when, especially to a non-cycling thing, uh, or even within cycling, oh yeah, and, and it's sort of like one of the two different, oh, and he was world champion, and mountain bike this, or whatever, whatever. And so, yeah, to put it in perspective in that regard. Um, for me, no, in my mind, I'm like, okay, now we did it, came together once, well, let's do it again. And then afterwards, um, next year, things just, well, I was doing all the same things, all the same training, but my body wasn't reacting in the same way. And a, a long story short, um, I raced the tour with the idea to win it, and I went there, but from February onwards, I was continually getting sick, and I just felt exhausted. Yeah. And in August, I was at Tour of Colorado, and same Dr. Max Tester rang me up and said, oh, I've been speaking with a um, contagious disease specialist, colleague of mine. Uh -huh. Don't start the stage tomorrow. I've spoken to the team. They booked your flight home. Go and sit in your couch for two months. This is in August. Wow. I'm like, shit, if only I'd known this in February, because like, I could have rested, come back, and maybe had a chance at doing a good tour. Yeah. But, um... What was it? I had, like, um, a form of chronic fatigue syndrome. Uh, I had a virus. But I'd been racing with it for so long. But in endurance sport, the difficulty is the poorest excuse you can make as an endurance athlete is I'm tired. <laughs> what was the symptom I had? I was tired. Now, I can't even use that as an excuse. But my recovery was so compromised. I remember waking up in February at home and I wake up in the morning and I'd look at myself in the mirror and I'm like, what's happened? I've aged like 10 years. Uh -huh. <clears throat> my face was all puffy and I had massive water retention and every effect of overtraining that you can have, I had. Yeah. But I was just doing the same training or less than what I was doing at the same time the previous year. And so um, so kept training, kept training. Oh, you're tired. Okay, take a rest day. Oh, but at some point, you're coaches and you're going to have to train. You have to, you, know, you have to get a result. You go to Tirreno, Adriatic or something, you've won it the year before and you can't even stay with the first 40 over the climbs. All of a sudden, people start treating you very differently. Uh, we'll go this way just because a little bit less traffic. Straight up here. And, um, but I, like I went to the tour and in hindsight I was like, I was seventh at the Tour de France with chronic fatigue syndrome. That was quite a good performance. As a, defending as a defending Tour de France champion, not being even competitive, it was a pretty poor performance in the, in our, our, the world of cycling. Yeah, yeah. And then there, that's where things, the pressure on me, the expectations on me, and not being able to deliver on a sporting mode was so heavy. So we've got to take a left here, uh -huh. up this road left, it's a little bit Italian. So, um, and all these um, expectations and pressures were building on me, and it was oh, it was really hard to deal with. Yeah, yeah, of course. And in the end, in cycling, so like you said, I've won a world championships and a Tour de France. So basically, going to the Tour, anything worse than winning, going to the Worlds, anything less than winning is 
is almost a failure. Yeah. If I go to Torino Adriatico, less than winning is a failure. Go to Romani, less than winning is a failure. Go to Dauphiné, less than second is a failure. <laughs> to, to perform at that level, just to be at that level is so high and the requirements physically, mentally, the sacrifices that you have to make. I always looked at my career or my chance to be a professional cyclist as an opportunity. And that opportunity is going to end. So not every day of 20 years, but most days I woke up, what can I do to make the most of this opportunity today? Whether it's training or recovery or racing smartly or trying to get yourself on a good team or um, and so when I did my last race, the Great Ocean Road race in uh, 1st of February 2015, across the finish line there, I said, you know what, I don't have any regrets. Reason being, one of the first professionals I ever met when I was about 16 or 17 years old, I remember I met him and he had real bitterness towards the sport of cycling. And here I was aspiring, dreaming of being a professional. And here I meet an ex-professional and he, he was bitter towards it all. And I was like, shit, I never want to be like that. And I was like, I never want that. But, you know, that planted a seed in my head as a young, before I was even a professional. I don't want to have that. So, so I worked hard and you know, maybe things hadn't come together in 2011 and being so close and having gone, gone against a couple of people whose results caused suspicion. Yeah. I may well have had some, some of that bitterness. But thanks to those, especially those two results, I retired uh, satisfied and, and happy. And um, now, after all the sacrifices and things that I did make, I'm trying to catch up with, which is why, like on the weekend, rather than staying home and training, and as I would have had to if I was a um, professional, I left my bike at home took the family, we got in a plane, we went to Sardinia for the weekend and um, enjoyed it. And here I was, let's go this way to avoid the traffic. <laughs> but um, no, just fin finishing off on that. So, um, no, I don't miss the racing now. I follow it a little bit, but I certainly don't miss it. But I'm sort of catching up with the sacrifices, the places I went that I wanted to go. I didn't have time to visit or the people I didn't have time to spend with, those that are still around, I try and spend that sort of time with them. Yeah. And then I'm now just enjoying the bike and I do work for BMC, I have my own race, the Great Ocean Road race, which of course is a lot of time, but I'm not in an office 8.30 or 6.30 every day, that's for sure. And here we are having crossed from Switzerland into Italy. And here we are, yeah, I'm going to count it as a day. I'm out working, leave me alone. <laughs> uh, taking, taking Matt for a ride. Lap of the world's cars. Sassino, Sassone, Val di Muggio. Now we're going to go have a coffee at Luca Paolini's cafe in the Piazza Alessandro Volta in Como overlooking the lake. Doesn't get better, mate. <laughs> Thank you so much. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.